Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into this very rich book, the book of Revelation, a book that has us going deep, right? And while we have numerous theological reflections, one of the points we are making here on Seeds of Truth is from one day to the next as we go through this book is to attempt to simplify, drawing out some practical reflections, reflections that can be applied to our everyday life, huh? And uh, for those of you who are listening by way of podcast outside of the country, I continue to uh, warmly thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me as we reflect into uh, the book of Revelation, especially those of you who are listening in the countries of Canada and Mexico, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, India, South Africa, Portugal, France, Italy, Spain, I see on my index feed also some of you listening in Croatia. So all of you who are tuning in by way of podcast, I do thank you from the bottom of my heart. Okay, that being said, let us jump back into the book of Revelation. Now we are in verse 17 of chapter 1, and we left off last time reflecting into how the liturgy is about war, and consequently prayer itself is about spiritual warfare. When you begin to put prayer in the context of a battle, I think we begin to think about it differently, huh? don't you? At least I do. I approach prayer with greater conviction, with greater intensity, when I put it in the context of warfare. I mean, think about it. If you were about to go to battle, you might prepare yourself with greater conviction and intensity, right? Well, there is a spiritual battle. So when we pray, and we do so with greater conviction and intensity, we will be all the better prepared. So the power of prayer, the power of liturgy, these are the things we were talking about. Remember that the word mass literally means what? It comes from the Latin word missio, which translates as to send forth. So we receive our Lord in the Eucharist so as to be nourished and strengthened for the battle, right? And then we go forth. We are sent forth to proclaim Jesus Christ in word and deed. So these were the kinds of things we were talking about as we were wrapping up our thoughts in our last program. And this is where we pick up now, verse 17. This is Revelation 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, this verse mirrors Daniel's account, huh? I mean, consider Daniel chapter 10, verses 7 to 12. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and when I heard the sound of his words, 
I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, give heed to the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So here, both Daniel and John fall down to the ground and are told what? Not to fear. Not to fear. I want to hit the pause button here. Is this not one of the great first proclamations of the New Testament, echoing really all of the Old Testament? What does the angel Gabriel say to Mary? Hail, full of grace. Do not be afraid. Huh? Do not be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because fear is the opposite of trust. And trust is the most concrete act and virtue of faith faithfulness, huh? So fear not. Don't let fear get the best of you. So what other similarities can be drawn between Daniel and John? Well, in the gospel of John, the apostle is called what? The beloved disciple, much like Daniel, as he is called the man greatly beloved. Isn't that interesting? Our Lord's title, the first and the last, hints at his divinity, right? The Lord God calls himself by this title numerous times in uh, Isaiah, huh? Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, chapter 44, verse 6, and chapter 48, verse 12. Now, what's interesting here is the similarities to the Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John, we have the seven I am's, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life and I am the true vine. The book of Revelation seems to be framed by such sayings, which occur at the beginning and the end of the book. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The verse we just read, I am the first and the last. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, I am the one who searches mind and heart. Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, again, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What do we read in the book's closing verses? I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. Now, what's going on as it relates to this I am? We are made to understand that when Jesus uses I am, he is one without qualification. Again, back in Exodus 3, when Moses asks who he is speaking to and our Lord responds, I am who I am. He is reminding all of us that he is, what? Without qualification. That you can never pin him down, per se. That there's always going to be an element of mystery to God. Why is this important? Well, because once you understand mystery for what it is, it's an invitation, right? Are we not all fascinated by mystery? It is not a coincidence, my friends, that all of the television programs that are doing well in the ratings are tied to what? Mystery, because we are all fascinated by that clever analyzing of clues. You have heard me say it before. 
We spend millions, if not billions of dollars to discover what lies beyond the stars and ultimately what lives on the bottom of our ocean floors. Why? Because we are captivated by mystery. And yet, why is it when a mystery is tied to God, we turn away? Mystery is an invitation. It should have us going deeper. And it's not that we can never understand God. No, because he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he reveals mystery. And so we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And over time, he reveals this mystery, a mystery that can only be unveiled in a personal relationship with him. Now, something else here. When Jesus uses those words, I am, he is also uniting himself to God, reminding us that there was never a time in his whole life journey that he was not in relationship with his father. Because from birth to death, from the crib to the cross, he was constantly in union with the father. And of course, this is the overarching truth that we are to learn from, that we ourselves are never to do anything without the father. Okay, how about verses 18 to 19? And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you see, what is and what is to take place hereafter. Now in verse 18, we have another instance where our Lord's divinity is subtly implied, huh? The phrase, I am alive forever, is very close to the title we heard of in chapter 12 of Daniel, verse 7, the one who lives forever. How about verse 19? The command to write what you see, what is, and what is to take place hereafter should probably be understood in light of a passage we have not yet read, huh? Chapter 4, verse 2 in the book of Revelation. Come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. Thus, John is to write about two things, something present, what is before us, right, what is, and something in the future, what is to take place hereafter. Why is this important? Because in that verse, and chapter 4, verse 2, we have a key that unlocks how to interpret sacred scripture, right? The what is and the what hereafter. The literal sense and the spiritual sense. The literal sense is that historical situation, and the spiritual sense is how the words written down by John transcend that very specific moment and speak to man in every age and in every walk of life. Very important. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 certainly give us a description of the present state of the churches in Asia Minor. Revelation chapters 4 to 22 describe the events that bring about the coming of the Lord. So in 2 to 3, you have the what is, and in chapters 4 to 22, you have the what is hereafter. Okay, how about this uh, last verse, verse 20 of chapter 1? As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's interesting. Daniel is the only Old Testament book where the theme of 
the mystery is found. You see it in chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, verse 27, verse 30, verse 47, chapter 4, verse 9. You have this theme of mystery. And again, in this verse, verse 20, we see the dominance of references to Daniel in the apocalypse. Huh? Also, in the book of Daniel, the messenger who appears to John explains the meaning of the symbols in the vision, right? It is apparent from this verse that Revelation must not be interpreted too literally. John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, that Jesus touches him with his right hand. However, in Revelation 1, 20, Jesus is holding the seven stars in his hands. The symbols are thereby meant to do what? Convey a spiritual meaning and should not be interpreted in overly literal fashion. Commentators you know, often debate about the meaning of the angels of the seven churches. Since the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 are written to these angels, some have argued that the angels are really bishops. It should be noted, however, that everywhere else this word is used in the apocalypse, it denotes angels. So John gives no indication that this word means something different here. Nonetheless, the association of the angels with the churches is striking and implies at the very least that the church is not merely an earthly reality. Uh, as we've already noted, a Jewish tradition which linked Zechariah 4 to Daniel 12 saw the lampstands as representing the what? The righteous. So taken together, the lampstands and the angels may serve as reminders that the church is both an earthly and a heavenly reality. As one uh, Protestant scholar writes, one of the purposes of the church meeting on earth in its weekly gatherings is to be reminded of its heavenly existence and identity by modeling its worship and liturgy on the angels and heavenly church's worship. Amen to that. Now, I want to say something else here that I believe to be very important, and it's a point that Michael Barber makes. While it is true that Jesus loves us as our brother and true friend, we often emphasize our Lord's gentleness and humanity to the neglect of his glory and divinity. A modern American Catholic would probably have expected something much different than what we have talked about in Revelation 1. Instead of the vision of the Son of Man having a sword coming out of his mouth and fiery eyes, a modern version of Revelation might have envisioned Christ calling John on the phone and, and asking if he could spend the day fishing with him, right? Our secular society tends to pervert ideas of God's nature. I'm sure we have all encountered that on some level. Some people treat God as if he were kind of butler or, or genie. They expect him to bring us whatever we need, whenever we ask, huh? Others treat Jesus as though he's nothing more than, well, a fishing buddy who just wants to have a nice time with everyone. Still others dismiss God the Father as a kind of senile old man who has forgotten how to work in his marvelous ways. These are all perverted attitudes towards God. And my dear friends, the book of Revelation corrects that. When Jesus' glory is revealed, even John, the beloved disciple, the apostle who rested his head on Jesus at the Last Supper, falls down at his feet as though dead. Think about that. John doesn't audaciously slap Jesus on the back and say, wow, good to see you. No. 
He doesn't say, well, how is that ascension thing, Jesus? That looked fun. Can I do that? No, he doesn't say that. St. John recognizes his unworthiness and falls down and worships. How can we possibly do anything different? Does he not echo Moses there? Were we not just talking about the I am who I am? What did God say to Moses? Take off your sandals for you are on holy ground. John picks up that cue and prostrates himself before God. Prostrates himself before God. Revelation 1 unveils the awesomeness of God, huh? It teaches us that we can't put God in a box of our choosing. We can't simply construct a frame for a picture of God that makes us feel comfortable. Yes, God can be scary. He shatters all of our preconceptions and assumptions. Thankfully, thankfully, brothers and sisters, he is also a father who loves us and doesn't want us to be fearful. But we can't simply forget with whom we are dealing. We must put our pride away and come before the Lord with humility. Always, anywhere and everywhere, acknowledging our own unworthiness. Only when we do this will we truly appreciate this awesome love. Amen to that. I was reading Peter Williamson's commentary in the book of Revelation, and uh, this is what he has to say, and, and I really appreciate this. <laughs> the joy and hope of these words remind me of a scene from the conclusion of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. After falling unconscious when the ring was destroyed, Frodo's friend Samwise awakens and sees someone he thought had died months earlier. Gandalf, you're alive. I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? One of my favorite lines, by the way, from that, that movie, from that book. Is everything sad going to come untrue? <clears throat> Williamson continues, The message of Revelation, epitomized in these opening words of Jesus, is a definitive, yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. I love that. You see, my friends, the revelation of the risen Lord presented in the book of Revelation and the inner understanding that it evokes of who this Jesus is will enable Christians to face whatever challenges and whatever circumstances come their way. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. I love that. Okay, now let us turn to chapter 2. Let us start off by saying this. Revelation chapters 2 to 3 contain letters to the seven churches. What is important here is the number seven. Huh? As we've already talked about, we must see these letters in terms of real churches who struggled with their very real own particular problems, right? However, since seven is a number indicating wholeness, the letter should also be understood as being written to the whole church. An ancient compilation of New Testament books states, John 2, indeed, in the Apocalypse, although he writes only to seven churches, yet addresses us all. This is very important. And let me just footnote something here. Why is the number seven so significant? Well, this would have us going back to the book of Genesis. And the first time you read of oath swearing and covenant making between man and God. And in this case, between Abraham and Abimelech. 
They made a covenant. And in that covenant, they swore an oath. The Hebrew word that is found in the book of Genesis, when we had this first oath swearing ceremony going on, is Shavah, to swear an oath. It literally translates as to seven oneself. To seven oneself. Okay? So to enter into a binding covenant, there is always an exchange of seven things, as seven would now symbolize what rightfully belonged to God. Why do you see the word seven everywhere in the Old and the New Testament? Because it symbolized perfection? It symbolized wholeness? Yes, but it was also the number that was tied to the covenant made with God. And again, when you talk about a covenant, you are just not talking about the exchange of things. No, but persons. Not this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. This is the kind of covenant making that was going on in the Old Testament and, of course, reaches its crescendo in the person of Jesus Christ himself, where he literally lays his life down in the great Eucharistic covenant. So the the number seven is significant to the extent that it is fulfilling a covenant with God, okay? Now, because of this reality that these seven churches also uh, represent the whole church, the message of each letter contains important lessons that are as true for Christians today as they were 2,000 years ago. Indeed, many people are often surprised to find just how similar the struggles of the early Christian believers in Asia Minor are to those Christians face today. Nonetheless, these lessons will only be understood properly, I believe, after we have first considered the original historical conditions of the church in John's day. Now, while the reasons these particular seven churches were chosen is not entirely clear, their selection may have had something to do with their location. What do I mean? Well, geographically, the seven churches, if you were to look at a map, you can see it, form a kind of circle. A missionary could very easily walk from one to the next. The order in which the churches are named, Ephesus first, Smyrna second, and etc., certainly lends credence to this view since this is the order in which they would have been visited by someone walking this route. I just find that interesting when you look at a map. Now, many of the promises made by Christ to the churches in these lessons are certainly also fulfilled at the end of the book. We read in chapter 2, verse 7, a share in the fruit of the tree of life. Same thing we read in chapter 22. In chapter 3, verse 12, we read of the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven. The same thing we read in chapter 21. In chapter 3, verse 12, we also read of the dwelling in the temple of the new Jerusalem. Same thing in chapter 21, verse 22. God's name is written on the saints. Chapter 3, verse 12. Also chapter 22, verse 4. In chapter 3, verse 5, we read this language of being written in the book of life. Same thing in chapter 21, verse 27. And there's numerous other examples. The morning star, a share in Christ's kingship, deliverance from the second death. Why am I talking about this? John shows us that Jesus is faithful to his words. John shows us that Jesus is faithful to his words. Okay, but how do these letters fit into the main theme of the book? I would suggest, as many others do, the answer is more pastoral 
than theological. If you were a Gentile Christian living outside of Jerusalem, the prediction of the fall of Jerusalem may have led you to pride. Jesus wants to make something very clear. If God won't spare his beloved city of Jerusalem, no one is above God's judgment. In fact, all of these churches, from Ephesus to Laodicea, eventually fell away from the gospel. They have been overrun by Muslim forces and are under their control, as many of us know to this day. This is a stern warning for Christians of all locations and times. Okay, now, how about chapter 2, verses 1 to 7? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have rested those who call themselves apostles but are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so just a word about Ephesus here. Ephesus was the largest city of its province, probably because it was the best port of entry in the region. It was well known as a religious city, having numerous temples, the most prominent temples certainly being the one to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Many of us are familiar with that. In fact, Ephesus was nicknamed the Temple Warden. Occult mysticism seemed to flourish there. If you were to go to the book of Acts and read chapter 19, verses 13 to 19, certainly this seems to be referenced. The church at Ephesus was also prominent in the days of the apostles. St. Paul spent more time there, three years, than anywhere else. St. John lived and was buried there. The Blessed Virgin Mary was another member of this church. Other members included the great early Christian apologist Apollos, three daughters of the Apostle St. Philip, Paul's disciple Timothy, and according to some, Mary Magdalene. So, Ephesus was an important region. And I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time, so we will take the letter of Ephesus and draw out its practical application uh, for us tomorrow. And let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.